Today's show is brought to you by Leatherman Data Services. How would things have gone for LaSalle if he'd had a good mapmaker to find the Mississippi? What if the Santa Fe expedition had been able to commission a detailed survey plot of all the wells and springs from Texas to New Mexico? If Leatherman Data Services had been around back then, Texas history may have turned out differently. Leatherman Data Services are experienced cartographers who share your passion for the past. They provide high-quality mapping and geographic data services for historians, archaeologists, and cultural resource management firms, people who plumb the depths of history and need their maps to be accurate. If you think you may need their services, you can contact Leatherman Data Services by sending an email to leathermandataservices at gmail.com or find out more at their website, leathermandataservices.com. We thank Leatherman Data Services for sponsoring this episode and many others on the History Podcasters Network. You can find more shows like this one at historypodcasters.com. First, let me cover the thing that everybody says to my good friend Scott when he says, I'm from Texas City, Texas. And they say, that's not a real place. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Just about anything that enriches our lives can also destroy them. Revolutionary chemicals that allow crops to grow where they would otherwise fail, energy-dense petroleum providing fuel, as well as raw materials for a variety of goods to make life easier, cheaper, and more efficient. Democratic institutions that are meant to serve and protect us so that we may live prosperous lives. Early in the morning of April 16, 1947, all of these came together in Texas City, Texas, to create what is still the deadliest industrial accident in American history. But before we start, though, what's your favorite Texas town that you've only visited once? I'm going to go with Archer City, which is the former site of um, Larry McMurtry's uh, mega bookstore. Um, I went there once while, oh, I guess it was either right after college or during college, and it, I was just overwhelmed with all the books. I could have, you know, spent a week there just digging through the shelves. Well, I used to live near there, so I've been there plenty of times. But in one place I've only been one time, it was passing through on the way back from California, was El Paso, Texas. And I thought it was a beautiful city, and I wish we could have spent more time there. We only spent the night. You and Marty Robbins. Me and Marty Robbins. I'm going to say Dilly. Dilly, Texas. Because I like saying Dilly. <laughs> Dilly, Texas. <laughs> now... When preparing for most of our shows, we start out our research with the historical facts and work our way into a personal connection. This one, for me, was almost the exact opposite. I grew up in Texas City, and although I don't recall exactly when I first became aware of what's known as the Texas City disaster, I can't remember a time when it didn't color my perceptions and feed my fears. It was only years later that I read more about it and came to learn the facts behind the stories I'd heard all my life. Right, but let's start with the facts. Located on the southwest shoreline of Galveston Bay, between Houston and Galveston, Texas City began its life as land granted to veterans of the Texas Revolution in the 1830s. In the early 1900s, a group of duck hunters realized that the area was ideal terrain for a port. The Texas City refinery opened in 1908 and was soon followed by three more refineries that made the port of Texas City the site of major deepwater shipping of petroleum products to the Atlantic coast. The city was officially incorporated in 1911. With the major rail line connecting its port to the rest of the state, Texas City's industry had expanded to include three refineries, two chemical plants, a tin smelter, and massive oil tank farms by 1947, 
Thanks largely to constraints put on oil from overseas due to World War II, Texas City became the fourth largest port in the state, ballooning from around 5,000 residents in 1940 to nearly 16,000 in 1947. Relatively high-paying jobs in the petrochemical and supporting industries were drawing people to the small coastal town in droves. Docked in adjacent slips at the port on April 16, 1947, were two cargo ships. The SS Grand Camp, Grand Camp was a formerly mothballed Liberty ship built for World War II and reassigned to the French line to assist in rebuilding Europe. She had arrived in Texas City on April 11th, already carrying small arms ammunition from Belgium, machine parts, and bales of twine. She was loading ammonium nitrate fertilizer in Texas City. Due to the volatile nature of the fertilizer, also used to manufacture bombs, the Port of Houston wouldn't allow it to be loaded at their docks, and this will come into play later. The SS High Flyer was berthed next to the Grand Camp, taking on its own load of fertilizer and sulfur bound for the farm fields of Europe. The fertilizer manufactured in Iowa and Nebraska was already overheating in the warehouse along the docks. It was stored in paper sacks, and the longshoremen loading the cargo holds reported them being warm to the touch. About 8 a.m., smoke was spotted coming from the hold. The fire department sent in two trucks, and later two more from the volunteer fire department arrived as well. Shortly before 9 a.m., the captain ordered the crew to pump steam into the hold, choking out the oxygen for the fire in an attempt to save the cargo. This probably only made things worse. Ammonium nitrate produces its own oxygen. That's kind of the point of how it works. And the steam likely saturated the, fer- the fertilizer and formed nitrous oxide, a substance even more flammable. Fires weren't unusual on the docks. People were used to seeing smoke. And more often than not, crowds would form as people came to see what was happening. This latest incident was no exception, and perhaps more people than usual were drawn by the peculiar color of the smoke, thanks to the burning nitrous oxide. People on the dock also mentioned that the water around the ship was boiling. This increased crowd contributed to the high number of casualties. At 9.12 a.m., the ammonium nitrate detonated. The ship's cargo was thrown thousands of feet into the air atop a fireball that could be seen for miles across the bay. Shrapnel and molten fragments of metal came flying from the site of the explosion, and most of the buildings along the dock were completely flattened. A tidal wave flooded the surrounding area, windows were blown out in Houston, and shockwaves were felt as far away as Louisiana. A seismograph in Denver, Colorado registered tremors. The Monsanto chemical plant, only 300 feet away, was obliterated. Hundreds of employees and bystanders were killed instantly, and 27 members of the Texas City Volunteer Fire Department, including the chief, were lost. Debris from the Grand Comp landed on vulnerable chemical tanks all over the port area, resulting in secondary fires and smaller explosions. Fires persisted long after the initial explosion, lasting all day and through the next. Since a large part of the city's emergency crew had been killed in in the initial blast, they had to wait on additional help to arrive from surrounding areas. Assistance came from the Army, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, Texas National Guard, and the University of Texas Medical Branch Hospital in Galveston. Firefighters came in from Galveston, Houston, Fort Crockett, Ellington Field, and many surrounding towns. There was no functional hospital in Texas City at the time, so volunteers converted the City Hall and Chamber of Commerce buildings into makeshift medical facilities. Many severely wounded victims were evacuated to Houston, Sealy Hospital in Galveston, or the hospital at Fort Crockett. As if this wasn't bad enough, the first explosion ignited the ammonium nitrate aboard the neighboring High Flyer. Dock workers did their best to cut the ship loose from its anchor and set it adrift, sparing the port from further destruction, but after five hours they gave up and evacuated the area. At 1.10 a.m. on April 17th, the second ship exploded. Two more people were killed, and considerably more damage was done to the port. Fortunately, this second blast was anticipated, 
so most of the people had been safely evacuated. It was even broadcast live by Ben Kaplan of KTHT Radio in Houston, who said, Here comes another explosion. You have just heard it. The sky is like broad daylight. The fires were already burning from the initial blast and were made worse by the second. With such a large number of casualties, the high school gym was used as a makeshift morgue. A nearby auto garage was used as an embalming parlor. Dental students were called in to help identify the dead. There are conflicting sources on the total number of dead, but the official count was 468, 63 of which had never been identified. Due to the extreme nature of the explosion, the true count is impossible to know. In addition, there were 113 people that were simply identified as missing, since no identifiable remains were found. There were also likely foreign sailors that were unaccounted for. On April 19th, a memorial service was held in the high school stadium. On June 22nd, an interdenominational funeral service was held for those remains that could not be identified, and 63 caskets were interred in a memorial cemetery on the north side of town. More than 5,000 people attended the ceremony. The local paper, the Texas City Sun, ran an editorial which stated that all those affected by the event had been bound together by a great and common tragedy for which there is no ready word of solace. More than 5,000 people were injured and more than 500 homes were destroyed. An additional 2,000 people were homeless. Property damage was estimated to be over $100 million, which today is the equivalent of almost $1.06 billion. There wasn't a single structure for several miles that had escaped damage. Relief efforts continued as fires burned even a week after the initial explosion. In the days and months that followed, national fundraisers and pledge drives were held, with notable support from celebrities such as Frank Sinatra and Jack Benny. Insurance companies who had themselves been damaged set up temporary offices to process the thousands of claims that began flowing in. Along with reconstruction efforts came a federal investigation into the cause of the Grand Camp explosion. Chemists, engineers, and transportation officials spent months examining evidence and finally came to the conclusion that conditions aboard the ship were conducive to a reaction of the ammonium nitrate. The origin of the initial fire was never specified. There just wasn't enough information to figure it out. The theory I grew up hearing the most, though, was that a careless sailor had discarded a lit cigarette uh, into the hold and started the cargo smoldering like a whole day before the explosion. Hundreds of lawsuits were filed in the aftermath. People were grieving, but they were also angry. The most notable suit was Dalhite versus the United States in 1953, in which for the first time citizens were permitted to, to directly pursue legal action against the nation under the Tort Claims Act. This was a landmark case in which it was alleged that the federal government was negligent in how it manufactured, transported, and stored the massive amounts of fertilizers being shipped overseas to help Europe recover from World War II. They claimed that the materials were not properly labeled, and the magnitude of the danger the fertilizer presented was not fully explained to the people. This case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which ultimately found in the U.S. government's favor, because the provision of the law that was being argued was not applicable. Essentially, they found that although the government was negligent at an operational level, it could not be held accountable as a whole because it's not a person. Yeah, basically, they, I mean, it's a lot of legal speak that I tried to interpret, but basically the way I understand it is, yes, there were mistakes made and things weren't done correctly, but the government as a whole could not be held at fault. Even though mistakes were made by individuals executing the policy, mm -hmm. they could not hold the entire government responsible. Where's a lawyer when you need one to explain this thing? In addition to the reconstruction efforts, progress was made in the form of disaster planning. It became obvious that some attention needed to be paid to how such events were dealt with in the future, 
and the refineries in Texas City formed the Industrial Mutual Aid System to serve as a centrally located response system in the event of an emergency. Industrial zones across the state followed suit. There was no FEMA at the time or any kind of federal system to provide relief to victims of such a disaster. U.S. Representative Clark Thompson of Galveston proposed legislation to establish this sort of relief, and it passed in 1955. This resulted in 1,394 financial awards, totaling almost $17 million to the victims of the Texas City disaster. It also rebated property and school taxes for three years to help stimulate growth and rehabilitation in the area. Monsanto almost immediately pledged to rebuild, and they did. Uh, Years later, that's where my dad worked and retired after 29 years. The city of Texas City was gradually rebuilt and flourished, currently recording a population of about 45,000 residents. The petrochemical industry has always been, and continues to be, an important part of the local economy. In 2008, Texas City was the third leading port in Texas and the 14th nationwide. And it smells like money. First, let me cover the thing that everybody says to my good friend Scott when he says, I'm from Texas City, Texas. And they say, that's not a real place. It is a real place. And it's a huge industrial center, and it's a it's a big moneymaker for the state. Yeah. And, you know, this all takes place in the, the post-war years, right? You know, the whole country was prospering, and a big part of that prosperity was the growing petrochemical industry. The interesting thing about Texas City's foundation, really, to me, is that it happened in 1900, really the very first couple of years of the 1900s, and largely a big part of its growth was the fact that Galveston was wiped out by a hurricane. And Texas City, which is on the the the, the land side of the Galveston Bay, actually grew because it was protected from a lot of the worst effects of a hurricane that would hit Galveston. So it's interesting that the city really kind of got its start from a disaster, but then this disaster happened and Galveston was there to help them. And, you know, like they said, the representative from Galveston was a key contributor and key person in driving towards getting relief and help for Texas City after this disaster. Yeah. And I can't say that, uh, to my knowledge, none of my family were directly affected by this disaster. My dad and his mom and his, that, Part of the family was still living in Galveston at the time, but growing up in that in Texas City, we were always under the specter of this disaster that happened, you know, 50 years ago. Well, more than 50 now, but it was always something that we were aware of. And the you know the chemical plants and the refineries were all still very much in operation, so we all always lived with that idea that's like you know that could happen again. Um, and it's very important to remember that at this time also that along with this great econo- economic expansion that was happening. There were still big clashes between business and the unions and that sort of thing. And in fact, one of my sources for this was uh, the great book City on Fire by Bill Minutaglio. And there's a, there's a part in the book where he talks about how at the time there was a big discussion among unions and stuff. And there was this, this union guy named uh, DJ Jim Gavin, who was a, an agent of the National Maritime Union, who was going around the country and looking at ports and seeing how well the safety standards were being upheld. And he actually referred to Texas City at one point. And this was this was before the disaster. Uh, there's a quote here where he's given a speech and he starts saying that uh, ship owners are shamefully neglecting the safety of crews on explosive-laden ships. When two tankers pass each other in the channel, they are so close together that you can practically jump from one to the other. Should they scrape together, they can easily blow up. You know, so, and basically the conclusion is that 
Texas City was ripe for a disaster. I mean, it wasn't the only port, but it was just an example of the, the kind of carelessness that was going on at the time. Well, then you said growing up, because you grew up in Texas City, you said growing up for you, you and your dad, because he grew up in Texas City also, is that's the big fear this would happen again. And, and in fact, in some ways, something similar, not as bad, but something similar did happen in 2005, and that was the British Petroleum Refinery had a fire. And a number, several people were killed. But I remember when that happened on the news, they always, every news report referenced this 1947 event as well. Original 1947 uh, disaster was it made national headlines. I mean, there's a there's a picture in the the City on Fire book that shows the front page of the New York Times with this big aerial photo of this big giant fire burning in Texas well, City. To me, that was interesting because I knew a little of the history of of Texas City. That oh, it's a city that blew up. I didn't realize until much later. Like, I knew there was a disaster that happened there, but I never realized the scope of the disaster in terms of the number of dead, just the massive amount of destruction, how widespread that blast could be felt. But it was also really interesting because, as I read about it, I learned that it was really, in a, like, the national scope of it, that this was yeah. kind of a 9-11 type of an yeah, event of know. the time. I mean, it's not, it wasn't an attack by somebody. It was an industrial accident. But it was on such a scope of seeing an entire city's fire department wiped out seeing you know having to use city buildings as makeshift hospitals and morgues and they talked about in one st- story i read about this just the line of cars of just volunteers and people from all over the united states just jumped in their cars and started driving yeah to yeah Galveston. It, it's pretty amazing and you know it's like you're saying you're drawing that comparison to 9-11 and i was thinking the same thing you know it's just this whole um idea that there's this event this disastrous event that everyone can you know identify with they they knew that it or aware that it happened and you know it's just the outpouring of support that comes in a situation like that and it, and it brought people together yeah and this was right after world war ii where people were together for that so you know you could maybe argue that well people were already in that frame of mind to do that you know to come together to help but i think you know subsequent things that happened before and after world war ii people came together to help the people of texas but yeah keep, but keep in mind that there was a um you know, in terms of national communication, there was now radio was right. was well established throughout the United States. So it was in an age of TV where we all watched a plane hit a building, but there were live reports of, you know, we're waiting for the second ship to explode and the destruction is in the field. And, you know, people were listening to this real, getting real-time information about this, na- you know, this disaster. And so as a nation who had been through all these terrors of wars, it was just interesting to see that everybody sort of stopped and turned their gaze to this small town and small industrial area in Texas. Yeah, and to get back to that whole idea of communication, that's something else that I was reading, was that, you know, when it actually happened, the first explosion, they couldn't call anybody at first because, number one, most of the firefighters were on the dock. I think there was only one official Texas City volunteer fireman that was not on the docks and didn't die in the initial explosion. But number two, the telephone operators were on strike. <laughs> so there was a period of time right after it happened that no one could make any calls because there was no person to make the connections. Now, it says that the uh, the operators came back to work really quickly once they realized what was going on. They're like, oh, wait, you know, we need to be able to communicate. But that all points to and leads to after the disaster, like it, we mentioned, uh, they started to really think about disaster preparedness. It's like, okay, Number one, we need to follow the regulations better. 
obviously. Number two, we need to be ready in case something happens. We need to have a central communication channel in place. And that I don't, I couldn't find, I didn't have enough time. I couldn't find any actual sources for this, but I think I remember reading at some point that this disaster was also a focal point, like nationwide for that sort of thing. Is that the whole idea of being prepared for disasters was something that people hadn't really thought about. In right, that the, way. the industrial mutual aid system. And yeah. so like if a disaster had happened in Pasadena, then the area disaster recovery plan would kick into effect. Yeah. And, and like we said, you know, there was no FEMA at the time. There was no right. um, Homeland Security. There was, there was no federal organization that was in charge of dealing with disasters like this. So the locals had to yeah. do something. It's hard to wrap your brain around, I mean, it's hard to wrap your brain around just the scope of imagining, like, what it's like. I mean, the uh, the one an early story I remember reading about this is they talk about the twine, and you think, oh, twine, like, you think of that little ball of yarn that a cat plays with, but industrial twine, like, they didn't put things in shipping containers in this day. Things went down in the hole, they were held yeah. in well, nets, and, and the twine balls were huge, what, like, 20, 20 yeah, feet across well, something, and, and they came shooting out of the... Out of the hole, like cannonballs. Yeah, well, actually, the twine, most of the twine was actually stored on deck. Oh, really? It wasn't in the hole. It was up on top of the deck, yeah. So when it blew up, it blew these flaming cannonballs out yeah, of the top of exactly. it that crushed exactly. houses and set other things on yeah. fire. and, you know, it's just the sheer distance and velocity that some of the stuff was thrown was amazing. There was one story that talked about a lady that was, uh, you know, eating breakfast with her child at their dinner table, and the explosion happened, and it blew in their back door. And the door came flying across the room and landed on their table where they were sitting. And the whole house got knocked off its piers, you know, and they were like, you know, not anywhere really close to the ship. And yeah, I mean, it, it affected the whole town. It's like the whole port was leveled pretty much. Uh, houses were burning and a lot of them were destroyed. Um, there was, I had an assistant principal when I was in junior high and he used to tell a story, I guess, about once a year. They'd get the kids in the library, and he'd sit us down and tell us about his memories of the Texas City disaster because he was a young boy when it happened. And he would talk about, you know, what it was like to be miles away and, you know, hear all this stuff that's going on. And he talked about a, a relative that had, I think, if I remember correctly, was out working in their backyard with a wheelbarrow, and then a piece of debris, you know, struck him in the head, and that was it. And, you know, it's just this big explosion, and then you might hear it, and then miles away, you're like, oh, what was that? And then all of a sudden, you get hit by a big chunk of metal. I mean, the anchor of the ship flew like a mile. And that's part of the memorial now. But, you know, and that anchor is huge. Yeah. I mean, it's like a big ship anchor that got thrown a mile. So crazy, man. Yeah. And I just, I can't stress enough how wonderful this book is, City on Fire. Um, I can't really do it justice in this podcast. He does a really good job of telling it in a narrative way, you know, kind of pull it all together. Um, there's one story that he talks about in there that kind of, it's kind of eerie when he talks about it, but there was a, a priest, uh, with the Galveston diocese that, uh, was in Texas city at the time, uh, as father Bill Roach. And, um, he was working really hard to, you know, help people realize, you know, he's fighting against racism and poverty and all of that stuff. But apparently, and I don't. I never heard anything about this until I read this book. But apparently, uh, Bill Roach had been having dreams and stuff before the Texas City disaster. And um, one of the quotes that it has in here is, uh, "Easter is coming." And this is a quote for something that Bill Roach said: um, "Easter is coming, but we need to lead better lives. We need to change our ways." 
Texas City is a wicked place, a very wicked place. If we don't change our ways, blood is going to run in our streets in a very short period of time. That gives me kind of yeah. chills thinking yeah. about and it. It's like, like, <laughs> you know, he goes into more detail about the, the connections, and I'm pretty sure one of the people that died or he disappears or something. Well, and you know, the interesting thing is that the there was the 2005 fire in Texas City, and that instantly called up the memories of this event. Another thing that did was the recent explosion in West at the fertilizer factory, right. ammonia nitrate. And so uh, I think that, you know, people need to t- be, be aware of the dangers of fertilizer and that that exact thing happened. It blew up and killed many firefighters. And There's that. Then, I mean, it's also was used in the Oklahoma City bombing. And then many years before that in the late 60s, early 70s, there was the University of Madison, Wisconsin. There was a, mm-hmm. a another chemical bombing like that. And it was an ammonium nitrate bomb. Yeah, you but, can get at a fertilizer store. I mean, but the irony... But it's, it's the, great fertilizer, by yeah, the way. It works right. it say wonders in your garden. Like, it's like one of the great ironies is that, you know, the Allies dropped millions of pounds of ammonium nitrate bombs on Europe, and then they shipped even more ammonium yeah. nitrate overseas yeah. to Europe to Help their fertilize recovery. their fields yeah. and revitalize their farm yeah. system. So it that like I was saying in the in in the introduction, you know, there's these wonderful things that we have in life that if we don't treat them carefully, can hurt us. Right. Well, that's why I never use a handgun as a hammer. <laughs> you know, you can't turn on the news today without seeing all kinds of industrial accidents that happen around the world in terms of oil spills or airplane crashes or. Just there's always tragedies that are, that are happening and that are communicated to us. But I think it's interesting that it's just such the gravity of this that happened so many years ago, and it's still a story resonates on every level with us. And it's central to the story of Texas. It is central to the story of Texas. It, it put Texas on the world stage, and it also led to change for the greater good. There's a lot of, even though it was a horrible thing and a lot of people died, a lot of people were injured, a lot of people were hurt by it, ultimately it led to better things happening. And that's the lesson of this story. Thus endeth the lesson. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Matt Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants, wants you anyway. anyway.